we all worship something. All of us worship something. <clears throat> Part of the verse we heard earlier on, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You know, there's all sorts of gods. There's all sorts of idols. There's all sorts of objects that we give our energy, our time, our honor to, that we deem worthy of uh, something, that we deem worthy of our time, worthy of our energy, um, wor- that, that have something of worth about them, something of worth-ship. That's the etymology of worship, that, we, that it has worth, and therefore we give something to it. We kind of honor it. We esteem it. It may be success. It may be reputation. It may be sex. maybe fame. Maybe social standing, it may be work or people. Um, the question I think is always, okay, where's your heart? Because that's kind of that's that's the heart of worship, isn't it? Really, where your heart fully goes, your energy, your time, your resources, your dreams, uh, and your wallet. I would suggest those things kind of follow on afterwards. Let me just read this passage. We're going to hear it um, a bit later on, I think. But um, let's just. Can we have the passage now, actually, the John 4 passage? Victoria, are you going to come and read it? Thanks, Victoria. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. I don't know if you noticed that. Jesus said, you Samaritans, speaking of these people, you worship something that you don't know. And I'd kind of suggest that it's easy for us to get caught up in worship of things that we can't ever really know. We worship stuff. You know, we may go to the Apple shop 
to kind of kneel at the altar of Apple and worship there. Or we may, it may be fame or reputation or our dreams or success. We can worship those things and we hunger after them, but it's kind of an appetite that can never truly be fed because it's not a thing. It's, it's an idol in the same way that kind of other cultures worship a stone rock or a piece of wood. And in scripture, God kind of says, you know, you worship these, these dead things that have no life in them. And yet you could worship me, the author of life and hope and joy and peace and salvation. And, you know, so I think it's easy for us to end up worshipping things that really have no life in them. And give our heart to stuff that is effectively dead. And Jesus is saying here, but my longing is for you to worship in spirit and in truth. And to worship uh, me. To worship who I am, not because I need your worship, but because you can access and encounter God in it. And just because it's contemporary doesn't necessarily mean that it's full of, you know, life. Uh, Even kind of contemporary worship can become religious, can become just a thing that we do. So those of us who have been around church where we've always had a band and, you know, like my kids, all they've ever known is kind of band-led worship with electric guitar and, you know, a worship leader at the front, you know, a young, cool, good-looking worship leader at the front like Joel, uh, you know, that, that, that's all they've ever known. But actually that too can become religious in its own way. Um, I quite like this when I saw this today. That's sometimes a criticism of modern worship songs, isn't it? It's just the same line again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And it can become religious. Just singing songs can become religious. So what about worship then? Well, what's God wanting to teach us? Well, I thought... To, to quickly whiz through what I feel the kind of foundations of what our worship at is here at St. Matt's. So I want to use the acrostic worship to try and help us remember it. It's the first one, W then, in worship, an acrostic, all those letters going down, if you're making notes. Worship, first letter, worthy. Worthy. Our worship should be worthy. Revelation 5.12 says this. This is speaking kind of in heaven in days to come. In a loud voice they were crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Worthy is the Lamb. This is speaking of Jesus saying, He's worthy to receive our praise. He's, he's of great worth, more worth than we could ever, and so therefore he deserves our praise. And you can only ever give that and do that when you know who it is you're worshipping. Which is why I say, if you're here as a kind of someone who's just exploring faith, it's okay just to sit and be and think, who are all these nutcases? And why is it so cold? Or tonight you can exchange that for why is it so hot and stuffy in this room? Why are there people with a hand in the air? Do they need to go to the toilet? Why is there kind of, why are they singing these songs? What, what's going on? It's okay to go on that journey and to just try and work out what's going on. Because we sing these songs not because that's what you do in church and you're supposed to, although sometimes that is how it works. We sing these songs because we would say we've discovered the source of life and hope and joy. And it doesn't mean we've all got sorted lives. As you go around the room, you'll find much brokenness, much pain, much loss, much sorrow. And yet in the midst of those storms, you'll find a bunch of people who have found hope and joy and power and healing and the miraculous, because we believe in a God who's alive. And so when you found someone like that, well, you can't help but shout about it and declare them to be the greatest thing. You want to honor them, because they are worthy. That's why we're, you know, to use an Americanism, nuts about Jesus. We don't keep going on about Jesus because we're paid to do it. Well, I mean, I am, although you can't really call it pay as a vicar. But, you know, most of us in this room have proper jobs and real lives. But we go on about Jesus because we discovered how incredible he is. And we want to share that good news with the world. We know God as a father. 
And we've come to an understanding of the reality of his goodness and his power in our life. We've come to experience the reality of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Not some, (coughs) the force. Not some kind of vague thing out there, but the power of the Holy Spirit. A person who's with us, who brings life and healing and transformation. He is worthy. Many people here could share amazing stories. I've seen him heal the sick. I've heard him speak into my life. I've seen miracles that are unexplainable. I've seen him beautifully transform broken, violent, traumatized people. I've seen him transform lives that seem totally screwed up. I've seen God give them hope, hope to the hopeless. I've seen addicts and prostitutes and mums on school gates and businessmen and students and the rich millionaires and people with absolutely nothing and children meet with God and have their lives turned upside down by his love and never be the same again. That's a God who is worthy to be praised. That's why we sing our songs of praise. There's a verse in the Bible that says, if we didn't sing, then the stones would cry out because he's glorious, he's magnificent, he's worthy. And because he's worthy, we move on to the next letter, O, we bring an offering. We want to offer something to thank him for who he is. Not because he demands it or needs it because he isn't complete, but because it does something to us. We want to offer ourselves and offer our praise to God. Hebrews thirteen fifteen says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that pro- profess his name. You know, we're offering something to him. In our worship, we're giving him our time, our energy. You know, we could be at home watching the Antiques Roadshow or... Even more so, we could be at home watching Manchester United play Liverpool. But we're not. Many of you, that won't affect, but me, it does. It's a sacrifice sometimes, but it's an offering. Jesus, you know what? I'd rather be worshipping you than watch Man United probably getting beaten by Liverpool. I definitely, thank you, thank you. It's even more worth being here now. He's worthy to be praised. He's glorious. He's magnificent. And sometimes there is a cost in that. There's a cost of time and energy. And sometimes, you know what, when, when things are really tough, but we choose to worship him, wow, that's so beautiful to God. That's such a precious offering that he loves it and his love and his favour floods out on us. It's an offering, a sacrifice of praise. But it's not just about singing songs. Some of you in this room, I know you love singing. You know, it's your own little X Factor audition for some of you. And you love singing. You love it. You sing in the shower. You sing at church. You sing in the car. You sing walking around Tesco's. People think you're mad. You come to church and you can sing really loudly. Others of you, not so much so. I'm looking at you, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> but I know Jonathan is a worshipper. He loves to worship. Because it's not just about songs. Romans 12, 1-2 says, this is from the message. I love this translation. This is talking about living as a living sacrifice. It talks about this in Romans 12 from the message, I love it. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. That's worship. That's living as a sacrifice saying, Lord, here I am. I give you my life, I give you my family, I give you my hopes and my dreams. I put them into your hands as an offering. 
Not because it's going to be awful now. Oh, I'm such a worm. I'll give it all away. No, because he's the good, good father. He wants to bless you. He wants to lead you. And he can only lead you and shape your future in fullness if you actually give it to him. When we hold things close, it actually prevents God from laying hold of our lives in a way that he wants to bless and lead and encourage and lead you into a place of hope and strength. So we give him an offering and he wants to be there for us. And we, we, but, but, Jonathan, but we also do it in song. <laughs> and the people of God have always sung. I had a friend when I was at university. He probably has the worst voice in the universe for singing. I mean, it was painful. I mean, people would leave houses down the road and move away when he would sing. And he would sing all the time. And, and, and he was a Christian, so it was really annoying. So I didn't feel I could moan about it too much. But he would sing in the morning, and he would sing in the shower, and he'd sing at night. And, and I, m- my room in this Christian house was underneath the shower. And he would wake up at some ungodly hour of the morning. I'm not a morning person, right? Sadly, even worse, he was. And he would get up at six, and he would start singing raucously and painfully and worship songs. Well, I would think they were worship songs. It was hard to tell. And I remember lying there, genuinely remember lying there one morning thinking, God, this is awful. Please let him stop. It's one of those rare occasions. I, I say this kind of ashamedly. I felt God say, Tim Buckley, you need to shut your mouth because what this man's doing is beautiful for me. It was a kind of, oh, <laughs> oh Lord, open up the ground and swallow me, Lord. Because I know his voice might have not been beautiful, to put it mildly, but he was giving worship to God. And it wasn't about the quality of his voice or his song. His heart was, Lord, I want to worship you with everything I am and everything I have. It was beautiful. It was an offering. So, W-O, worthy offering. The third one I want to say is it needs to be real. John 4.24, we heard it tonight. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. There's something about truth. That kind of implies that we can worship not in spirit and not maybe even in truth. God's looking for worshippers who worship it in truth. Truth is key. And I just want to encourage you that God knows your heart. He knows if you're struggling. He knows if you're really cheesed off. He knows if you think this vicar is just such a numpty. Lots of people will agree with you, so that's okay. But he knows your heart. And when you come to church, he doesn't want you to simply put on a mask and go, I'll put my hand in there and sing a song. It's okay to be really real. That's why I love the Psalms. The Psalms are full of people who are saying, you know what? Life is tough. God, where are you? This really hurts. People are surrounding me, giving me real hassle. And I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I'm broken. I'm confused. I feel like I'm dying. But I'm going to put my hope in you. I'm going to look to you, God, and ask for your help. I think worship and truth are really key for our worship to be real. And you know what? That's why, again, for us at Samats, you know, sometimes we're, we're just raw. As we, we're really blessed. We've got great musicians and great worship leaders here. But we never, never, and I really mean it, we never want it to be performance. If God, please, don't let us ever become a performance church. We want our worship to be authentic, to be real, to be heartfelt, to be earnest, to be honest. Not a performance, not a show. That's one of our key values. Tonight is not a performance. Tonight is these guys, and particularly Joel, saying, I love God. He's given me a gift of music. I can imagine in my mind a load of flautists. I don't know what you call a group of flautists. Flautists, thank you, really helpful. A load of trumpeters. Tutors, we'll call them together. You know, a load of 
well, there's only one cello. I love the cello. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, he had this vision of, I want to bring these instrumentalists together, people who often aren't involved in worship, and we want to put the music together, and he's going to write the music and write all the pieces for it, and then we're going to do it for God's glory. And it will be different, but it's not a performance. It's for his glory. I love that. I love that, because it's real. It might be different, but it's real. It's authentic, because I know Joel's heart is always that. It's not for our glory. It's always for his glory. And whether it's just me with a guitar, or whether it's you know, Joel with a whole band, or even if it's just John on his own on the drum. (laughs) It's for God's glory, and we want it to be real. That's the R. Next letter, S. S for surrender. Romans 12.1, I said it in the message version. This is what it is in the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We surrender. You know, it's a funny thing, and I get it. I remember the first time I was in church and I saw a load of people with their hands in the air. I kind of, if I'm honest, thought they looked a bit odd. I thought they looked very odd. And yet there was something in their body language that, made, that really intrigued me. See, I'd grown up going to a really traditional Baptist church where, you know, most of us in worship, well, any of us under the age of about 40, looked dead in worship not fully engaged, if I'm honest. It was a very traditional church. We certainly didn't look enthused. I'm not a psychologist, but I understand a bit about body language. It's very, very interesting looking around the room. (laughs) You know when you have conversations with someone? I'm I'm thinking of, I'm actually thinking of my wife. And someone does this when you're talking to them, or this. And if you recognize that look, Peter, you recognize this look? Do you get this quite a lot? Yeah, Peter recognised it, and rightly so. <laughs> that, that look, or that body language, that closed-down body language. You can look in couples. I, I, we were, Sarah and I went out for a beautiful meal the other day. We were very happy. I didn't say anything wrong for a change. I didn't have to remove my foot from my mouth. It was all going brilliantly. But I looked across the table at another couple, and you could tell, for, and I'm, I'm a bit nosy, it has to be honest. I like, I'm a people watcher. I love it. Looking at this couple, I was thinking, ooh, I wonder what he said. And if I'm honest, a part of me went, it's great because it wasn't me tonight. (laughs) You could tell that he'd said something really bad and she was not impressed. It was supposed to be a nice romantic meal, but she was like, with the menu, and he was like... Body language says a lot. Now, it's not about the fact that if you've got your hand in the air, it means you're really worshipping, because, of course, that can be fake as much as anything else. But when we're truly yielding ourselves in worship, there should be an openness where we surrender and we say, Lord, here I am. Take me as I am. All my brokenness, all my mistakes, but my heart is to give you honour and praise because you are worthy to be praised. 2 Samuel six twenty two. we haven't got time to talk about it, but it's that passage where King David basically gets down to his boxes and rocks about worshipping. You know the one I mean? That's the kind of message translation. And, and, and all those around him are really kind of like, what is this guy doing? Particularly his wife is massively offended. I love his response. He says this, I'll become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. People around him were offended because of his kind of, his lavish worship. Now, I know most of us here are Anglicans, so I'm not expecting you necessarily to conga around the building. But there is something about, I love the children when they run around in worship. And Caleb's here with his arms in the air. And a couple of weeks ago, I was leading worship. He was like, yeah, Jesus.
Jesus, Jesus. Tim, look, I've got a poorly on my elbow. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. It was brilliant while we were rehearsing. And there's just a heart that says, I don't care about anyone else. I'm just going to be me in the presence of God and I love to worship. We need to be more like children sometimes. We get inhibited. We get restricted. We get embarrassed. Oh, that looks a bit extreme. That looks a bit emotional. That's Well, we're all different. Some of us here are emotional, some less so. But if our worship is authentic and real and surrendered, it's beautiful to God. It's an offering that pleases him. And so I want to encourage you. I'm not going to say, right, and now everybody, put your hand in the air. No. But you know what? Sometimes I love to just stop singing and just kneel on the floor and listen to the worship and just let my silent prayer go up to God. And sometimes I'm so moved that I can't even sing. You know because I've shared it here before and it's not easy to say as a bloke, especially a really cool bloke. It's not easy to say, but sometimes in worship, all I do is cry. I just start crying. Not because I want to, trust me, really not because I want to, but because God is so real, more real than anything I've ever known. His love is more powerful, more transforming. His heart is more healing. And I I know his desire is to bless and to reach out and to encourage and to challenge and to nurture. And you feel that sometimes in worship because he comes close to us as we yield to him in worship. And so maybe if you're one of those people that's kind of a bit closed down in worship, I just want to encourage you. You don't have to stick your hand in the air. But maybe kind of unfold your heart a bit. Open up your heart a bit and say, Lord, I'm doing the best I can. I'm English. I might struggle to kind of get a bit into this, but, but Lord, you know, oh, I can feel myself swaying slightly. <laughs> Let's try and be more open to him, to be more surrendered, to be more yielded, because as we yield ourselves to him, as we abandon himself, ourselves, we pray that prayer, don't we? Lord, that John the Baptist prayed, Lord, less of me, more of you. And sometimes we need to let go of self in order for him to fill us. So we've had W-O-R-S and H. H, well, it's the same thing, really. It's heartfelt. Isaiah 29, 13, if you're taking notes, says this. This is kind of a painful verse, this one. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship for me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. I just want to say religion is the killer of relationship. And as a church leader, I want to say sorry to you, to any of you who have just experienced churchianity, who have experienced religion, who have experienced the worst excesses of institutionalized religion. And that can be in all flavors and forms. This isn't about knocking the Anglican church or the Catholic church. It can be true for the Baptists. It can be true for the Methodists. And it can be true for the house church movement, which I was part of for many, many years. We become institutionalized and we become religious. We have certain ways of doing things or saying things. or Our worship can become simply ritualistic rather than about relationship with God. And I'm sorry... Because actually that bruises and wounds many people. And it puts people off, understandably, from God. And I suspect it puts God off from those places often as well. It's never supposed to be like that. These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And when you hear that verse, that's God speaking in the Bible. That's not a God shouting at the church, raging. I think that's a father whose heart is breaking for his people. Who, a father in heaven who longs to reach out and embrace the people. And do you know what? They're held away by religion. 
They're separated from God because the religious powers go, you can't approach God like that. Oh, you can't be too free. Don't smile. What do you mean joy? All of that stuff. You have to fulfill these rules and these regulations before you become worthy. That's what Jesus confronted in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's why they were sad, you see. It's a terrible joke. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were just religious. It was about rules. It wasn't about relationship with God. And their worship was just about going through rituals that they never really understood because they didn't know the God behind them. And they stopped at the rituals. And we can all do that. We can all get stuck into that. Our worship needs to be heartfelt. We offer God our heart. And the other thing I want to say, and this is true in the days where, you know, we're a really relaxed church and that's how we want to be. We want to be family. We want to be community. We want to be honest and heartfelt. But the danger of that is that we can also get into this kind of flirty thing with God. Yeah, God, I really love you. Yeah, you're really good. Jesus, you're my girlfriend. You're really cool. When I'm at church, I love it. And then we go back to our lives. And we jump backwards and forwards from this church. We go to church and we worship Jesus and then we go back into the world and we forget all about God. I would say that that's not really worship. That's not heartfelt worship. That's flirting. It's jumping around. It's having a divided heart. Jesus wants our worship to be authentic and for it to be heartfelt. A true ongoing relationship where we're seeking to find him. Which brings us on to I. We're getting into land. You'll be delighted to know. I stat is for intimate. Psalm 91 verse 1. It's the psalm I love. It says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Worship is really about dwelling. That's why as a church, you know, normally when we're leading worship on a Sunday night, we kind of have a flow of songs. Some of you may have been brought up, sing a song, sit down, have a notice, stand up, sing a song. And, you know, it can be a bit jerky and a bit disjointed. Worship, there's something about dwelling in the presence of God. And we don't have to do that on a Sunday night. We should be doing that in our own lives. Maybe when you're driving to work, I'd encourage you to put worship on. Have a bit of soaking worship on. When you're kind of lying on your bed, when you're doing a quiet time. If I'm honest, I really struggle with quiet times because they're often very quiet. I'm not good in quiet. But sometimes I love just to put some worship on and just sit in God's presence and then read the Bible. And that's why Bible apps like Dwell is good. Some of you will have used Dwell. Dwell is a fantastic Bible app that, that kind of has, it reads the Bible to you. It plays beautiful worshipful music in the background. We need to dwell in God's presence, soak in his presence. Psalm 84 verse 1 and 2 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. I know when I haven't worshipped for a while, I kind of ache to get back into worshipping. When I lived abroad in France for a while, there was no church that I was part of for a long time. You know, there wasn't kind of iTunes. iTunes didn't exist I am that old. In fact, the internet didn't exist. That's even more depressing. But, you know, when I lived in France, those things, you couldn't just access. And, and actually, I had to learn to just, God, I need you. My heart longed to engage with God. God wants us to have intimacy with him. But intimacy only comes if we hang out with someone. If you're in a relationship with someone, if you just pass like ships in the night, it's really hard to develop a friendship and an understanding of each other, to know one another's hearts. And when you hang out with someone long enough... Some of you in relationships and marriage will know, you know, you can finish each other's sentences, right? Sometimes that's really annoying, by the way, husbands, if you do do that. Especially if you tell your wife what you think she's thinking and get it wrong. That's really bad. But you can because you know each other, because you've lived together, you've dwelt together, you've hung out together. Intimacy 
is in the heart of worship. And that's why we spend time just singing a flow, a flow of songs because worship is a journey that we need to connect with him. The Greek word proskuneo is used over 50 times in the New Testament, uh, translated as worship, bowing down, kind of throwing ourselves before God. It's worship, the word that's used loads for worship. But literally, that word means to come to the kiss, to kneel and kiss. That's what we're doing in worship. Really? For we're singing songs. There's an intimacy. God's saying, as you worship, it's like you come before the king. And you offer a kiss. You know what's remarkable? He graces you with a kiss in return. It's intimacy. It's, it's kind of between friends, between the beloved and the lover. It's that level. That's what worship is supposed to be, a moment of intimacy. where It's a connection with God where heaven kisses earth with you, through you, in a moment. It's all about relationship. And if you're not sure about that and you think, really? Then read Song of Songs. I won't say any more. The last thing, P, is prophetic. Our worship is prophetic. Worship is a prophetic thing. Jesus is coming back for a bride. And the church is his bride. It's a picture of kind of the people of God who are loved by Jesus with his bride. And he loves the bride. And he, the bride is called to love Jesus in that kind of picture. In Luke 7:36, there's this beautiful image where Jesus goes to this house and he's reclining at the table. They would sit kind of on a, there'll be a low table like what we would think of as a coffee table and they would sit on cushions and they would recline and they would eat there. And normally in the Middle East when that happened, what would happen is that when you arrived as a guest, an honor guest, a servant would come and wash your feet because it was dusty roads and it wasn't kind of particularly clean walking around. And they would wash your feet and then uh, with a towel and then the, the lowest of the low would do that and then you would have your meal. And during this meal, this woman appears and she kneels before Jesus while he's at reclining at the table and she starts to wash his feet, but not, not with a kind of bowl and a towel and some soap. She actually starts to weep over his feet and wash his feet with her tears and then with her hair, which would have been perfumed. And she breaks this oil over Jesus' feet and she pours this really, really expensive oil over Jesus' feet. And it says the fragrance fills the house. And, and there's this beautifully intimate moment that probably for everyone else in the room at the time was a bit kind of like awkward because it's kind of... What's going on? And in fact, we know from that passage that actually the religious leaders are outraged because this isn't just a woman, but actually this is a woman of ill repute. This is a woman who kind of like, you know, she's done loads of things wrong. That's what the Pharisees are saying. But Jesus' response is beautiful. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. For those who know they've been forgiven a lot, for those who have kind of have got a life of shame and brokenness and pain, but realize that there's a God who loves them and has forgiven them and transformed them, well, then worship is... The natural response to that, it's like I said earlier on, is to say, he's worthy, I want to praise him. And for this woman, she just poured out her love through her tears and through her washing of Jesus' feet with her hair. It was a beautiful act, intimate act, and a prophetic act of saying, Jesus is everything, I want to honour him. And the perfume fills the house. I want to suggest to you that true worship, really deep worship, often will 
kind of incite and irritate, again, the religious spirits. It kind of provokes them because it shows up what real worship is and what religious worship is. Religious worship is just, it's just a shell. It's just a form. It's just the words. It's just actions. But it's often harsh and dry and cold and leaves you feeling a bit dead or judged. Whereas beautiful, true worship is a bit intimate and a bit kind of like, wow, okay. But it's beautiful and it's glorious and the fragrance fills the whole room. Here at St. Matt's, our longing and our desire is that the worship is all of those things. But above all, it's focused on Jesus and giving him praise so that the fragrance, what true worship is like a fragrance that rises up and brings glory to God and it fills God's house. That's the image that we long for here in this place. So, I'm sure you've got all of those things. What is worship? It's worthy. It's an offering. It's real. It's about surrender. It's heartfelt. It's intimate. And it's prophetic. It's not about a style of worship. It's not about certain music. It's not about certain instruments. All those things may help, and we can use them. They're vessels. But ultimately, it's our heart response to God's goodness. So what we're going to do to finish, we're going to, we're going to get the worship band, the worship horde, as we all call them, and we're just going to spend a few, few minutes in worship, and um, we're going to do that. ...of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's called the um, Great Commission comes with a great encouragement at the end. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's the Holy Spirit bit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so you're not alone. Go, but I go with you. It's the great commission. It's not the great suggestion. If you've got a bit of spare time and you're not too busy, then maybe you can go to the world. No, Jesus says, go, go, and I'm going to go with you. So we as a church, we want to be apostolic. That word apostolic, apostle, means a sent one. Now you might think, well, there's a few apostles in the Bible, or maybe a few church leaders are apostles. And that is a designation in Ephesians. It talks about apostles, and we'll talk about that down the line. But actually, if you're a Christian, then you're apostled. You are a sent one. God is sending you. And relating to what I said about calling you to stand with you, whatever age and generation you're in, God is sending you into the world as a gift, full of grace, full of potential, full of his goodness, full of his fruit, full of his kindness, full of his power. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Are you aware of that? Yes, yes. I'm English. Yes, I think there probably is lurking down there somewhere. In a Pentecostal church in Africa by now, they will be swinging from the shack. Yeah, amen! Power! But with Anglicans, we go, there's probably a little bit of power down there somewhere, if I look for it, probably, on a good day with the wind behind me. <laughs> You're full of power. You're full of life. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. And the world needs to hear that. So Jesus wants to send you out as this, this glorious ticking bomb to bring his glory and to bring his power, to bring his kindness and to bring his breakthrough. So we're a sent body. So we believe that as church, we're sent into the world. But we do that from relationship. We do that from family. We do that together. We don't kinda, we're not sent out individually, but we're sent, which is why we pray for Paul, which is why we just prayed for Bex. Because when we go, we pray. When we come back, we hear the good things that God does. And that, whether that's Sri Lanka or Bahamas, or whether it's into Twerton, we want to hear what God's doing so that we can celebrate it together. So those are the five foundation stones. Worship-centered, 
Holy Spirit encounters, family focused, generationally joined, together an apostolic community, part of the church in the city, because we're not saying we are the church, we're part of the church, the glorious church that together with other churches seeks to bring his glory and his goodness. Can you remember those? Good. That's what we're called to. So uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to kind of, different voices are going to share into some of that and and kind of say, okay, they sound really good and more importantly, they're really funky little signs that you've created, okay? But Tim, what does that really look like for us as a church? What does that look like for me on Monday morning when I go into lectures? What does that look like for me when I go to school? What does that look like for me when I go to work? What does it mean for me as a church? How does that, what do those things look like? Well, over the next five weeks, we're going to do that in some fun sort of ways and we're going to unpack that together and experience what that means. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to stop and uh, we're going to close with a bit of worship. Is that okay? Because.